Podcast, Episode 7. This is Christopher Gerald, and I'll be your host this week. This week, we're going to continue our series of What is Love with a discussion on the last kind of love that we'll cover in this arc, Eros. And honestly, it probably wasn't a good idea for Jared and Jeffrey to leave me unsupervised with this topic, but here we go. Uh, Before we jump in, I just want to say a quick thanks to our listeners. We so much appreciate the encouragement, the feedback. And um, if you enjoy the show, please tell someone you know or uh, share it on your social media account. We appreciate that so much as we want the messages that we have to reach as many people as possible. So we hope it's a blessing to you. Okay, to recap. In episode 5, Jared discussed phileo or philia, however you want to say it in that form. In episode 6, Jeffrey discussed storge or parental love. And today we're going to discuss eros or romantic love. Jeffrey said last week that I was going to spice things up, Uh, so if you're listening to this with children nearby, just get ready to answer their questions when we're done. If your grandma's listening, she will be mildly embarrassed, so uh, sorry, Grandma. Anyway, the challenge with discussing eros uh, from a biblical perspective is that the word eros appears nowhere in the New Testament. So does that mean that the subject of eros is absent from the scripture and that we don't really have a leg to stand on? Well, thankfully, that's not what it means at all. We're just going to have to do some digging and take the roundabout way to talk about these concepts, and hopefully we'll do it in a Christ-honoring way. So let's answer the question, what is eros? We need to define it. It's so important because I think there's a lot of misconception about what it actually means. In short, eros uh, was the name of the Greek god of romantic love and sex, and the Roman counterpart was Cupid. So maybe you're getting the idea now. We're all familiar with the contemporary image of these winged deities and the impact of their uh, being love-struck with their arrows. In Greek mythology, Eros could actually shoot the darts of desire into a person and make them fall in love with someone. And so we associate the idea of romantic infatuation, or love at first sight, with this kind of love. Uh, But in the classical sense, Eros, and that's where we derive the word in our culture, erotic, is more than just sexual attraction. It goes beyond that. And while it's true that there is usually a sexual component to eros, a person can clearly become smitten with someone before any thought of sex. And it can also be the case that someone's attraction to another person starts with basic lust and might ripen into eros, or this infatuation that they have with someone. And in some cases, honestly, it might be impossible to tell which came first, kind of a chicken-egg situation. Uh, But perhaps the best way I could explain this is to describe something I saw last weekend. So my cousin Carson got married, and my wife and I attended the wedding. Now, we've all been to a wedding. We know that when the bride enters, that the preacher says, All rise, and everyone in the building, they stand up, they turn around, and they look at the bride as she starts to walk down the aisle. And all eyes are fixed on her, right? She's radiant. She's beautiful. She's wrapped in white. She's got this flowing veil. She's decked with gold and jewels, and her eyes and her smile are fixed on the bridegroom. So let's talk about the bridegroom for just a moment. Now, next time you attend a wedding, I want you to try something. When the preacher says, all rise, and you turn around, don't look at the bride right off. You'll, you'll get to her in a minute, but don't look at her right off. First, look at the groom. Watch his reaction when he sees her. He's seen her before, right? But never like this. He looks at her, his eyes are, are open wide. As I can tell you from last weekend, Carson was awestricken. 
uh, at the sight of his, his bride walking down the aisle. His smile just glowed on his face, and it was pure eros, and I mean that in the most positive way. There were many beautiful women in the room, but he had eyes only for her because his desire and his attention was only for her. And he had that feeling, that rich, pure eros for her. And so I don't want to have anyone thinking that eros is a negative thing or a bad thing at all. Quite the opposite. Uh, so, you know, back to where can we understand a classical definition or maybe even a scriptural definition of this. So Jeffrey had the brilliant suggestion we were talking about it a while back. And he said, hey, uh, did you look in the Septuagint? Uh, and I hadn't. It's a it's a good idea. So the Septuagint is essentially the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was translated uh, by about 72 people, as the legend goes, in 250 BC. And so it was a translation of the Old Testament that is actually quoted in the New Testament of the Scripture. We know that from the Greek structure. And so a lot of people view it as being a fairly authoritative uh, Greek Old Testament translation. So it's mentioned in the Septuagint many times. One place is in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, where we're instructed to get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, for she will keep you. Love her, that's Eros, and she will guard you. And so in this context here, Solomon is encouraging his son to fall in love, as it were, with wisdom personified. And unfortunately, that's the only positive reference we have to Eros in the Septuagint. Uh, In the book of Esther, we see the king's love for Esther as he desires her above all the other um, women there in his court, uh, described as Eros. And based on his character, it's really impossible to tell whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. The other uses of Eros in the Septuagint actually describe Israel as a nation and her adulterous chasing after other lovers, other nations, other gods. And so unfortunately, uh, most of the usage for Eros in the Septuagint is an illicit affection, an illicit love affair. And so I think that is noteworthy as we have our discussion about that. So back to the question, why is Eros omitted from the New Testament? With Eros love being such a big part of the human experience, what could be the reason that it's not specifically mentioned? I mean, they obviously had the word eros in the first century when the New Testament was written. So why is it not part of God's Word? Well, consider this. The most important part and role of God's Word is to instruct humankind on how to relate to God. That does not come naturally. In fact, relating to the infinite Jehovah God is perhaps one of the most unnatural or maybe supernatural things The flesh can't get us there. Our own guidance and inclination can't get us there. And so we need God's Word to teach us to do that. But do we really need help finding the love of our life? Right, That's a pretty natural thing. People all over the world, whether they know God or not, they find someone, they're attracted to them, they have a relationship bond with them, that Eros love. And so we don't really need God's help to do that. And even to get that right... And so maybe that's the reason while Eros isn't specifically encouraged in the scripture, but maybe it is corralled. And here's why. So the other loves, in some cases, can lead us outside the will of God. For example, agape may lead us outside the will of God if we take our definition from a false teaching about God-like love or misunderstand it somehow or exercise it in the wrong way. 
but it's fairly difficult to sin while being totally unselfish and sacrificial. So agape doesn't really come with much of a warning label. Phileo can cause us to have such powerful affection for those that we feel fraternal love for that it can push us away from those whom we must show agape. One example is that love for our own country, if it errs into nationalism and xenophobia, that can be bad. Or if we elevate those of our own particular group, whether that's social, ethnic, racial, political, etc., if we elevate that so highly that we descend into a kind of a tribalism, us versus them, that can be bad. Now, obviously, Christ desires to transcend all these human divisions and bring everyone into one body, the church. So phileo must be tempered a little bit to keep it on track. Storge love, or that familial um, empathy love, can cause our dedication to our near relations to be so fierce that we become selfish or protective toward our own kin and maybe stingy and defensive against those who aren't of our kin. And if you've ever seen a woman go full-on mama bear when someone threatened her cub, then you probably know what I'm talking about. So this love also needs some tempering. And so the command from Paul to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2 and verses 2 through 4 is, Complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we look after our own interests, yes, but not to the exclusion or the good of others. It's not either or, it's and both. And the primary message of all of the segments so far has been twofold in admonition. One, to resist the temptation to withdraw our Christian love from those who make it difficult and inconvenient. And number two, to expand the range and scope of our love to include all whom Christ loves. And if we do these things, then our love will emulate the character of Christ and of God and help us serve him better. And so here is where the teaching about Eros makes a sharp departure away from the others. Our fleshly inclination may tempt us to take our Eros for our significant other and elevate it above the other loves. And maybe this is because while the other loves focus mostly on giving and obligation, Eros has an emphasis on receiving. And this receiving almost always gratifies the heart and the flesh. And in his discourse on the four loves, C.S. Lewis states that Eros can seem to speak with the very voice of God. And that certainly is true as we see people kind of make foolish decisions sometimes while they're infatuated with someone. It's interesting that um, in the Song of Solomon, it talks about it like this. Song of Solomon 8, verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire and the very flame from the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. So, full disclosure, the word eros was not used here even in the Septuagint. But it's my opinion that it's the concept of this infatuation with another that can be all-consuming. It can speak with the voice of God. It can flash with the very fire of God. But eros is not the highest love, not even close. And the danger here is that eros can cause us to do a lot of foolish things. The Greeks actually considered eros to be a kind of madness once you were stuck with his arrows, that you would suffer from this madness, this infatuation. 
And having been a teenage boy, I can attest that the infatuation was a great source of moodiness, foolishness, parental friction, and also putting a lot of miles on Jeffrey's black pickup in search for Eros. Uh, Did he forget to mention that that pickup truck belonged to me before it belonged to him? And that it actually belonged to three of my four sisters before that? I don't think he mentioned that, but I I Eros that truck. Maybe he just loves it. I Eros it. Okay, anyway, here's what Paul said about the distraction from an Eros-type affection. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So instead of encouraging us to expand our eros, the scripture gives us a warning that, look, if you eros someone, and again, it's not used in the New Testament here, but the concept exists here. If you're infatuated with someone, you're going to be distracted by a desire to make them happy. We've all seen people who were Christians and they fell in love with someone and maybe that person was a follower of Jesus and maybe they were not. But we've also seen those people leave the Lord and stop serving the Lord in order to please their spouse and do what their spouse wanted them to do. That's in the worst case scenario. At best, it can be a hindrance to our service. Sometimes we have to make sure to take the admonition and the command of Jesus literally. If he says, if any man come to me and hate not his wife and his children, his family, you cannot be my disciple. So really, we have to love our significant other less than the Lord. Because Paul says this could be a source of great distraction. And so our experience with romantic love really can impact our devotion to the Lord Christ. So here are a couple of other passages in the New Testament that actually deal with romantic love, even lust. We can find this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 3, going through verse 5. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So remember that God wants us to be sanctified. That is the, the will of God in this case. And he says that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to control his own body, the King James says, vessel, okay? So we can control our own vessel, our own body, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So first, God wants us to keep pure and avoid sexual sin. He commands us, therefore, to control our body and to behave in a holy and honorable way. And this would be markedly different than from the mainstream culture that the first century Christians lived in. Uh, and in their day, pornography, fornication, prostitution, homosexuality, and pedophilia were all common and acceptable forms of sexual expression. So this was incredibly counterculture, and it is today. So the question is, what is holy and honorable in terms of sexual expression? Well, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral, 
and adulterous. So marriage is holy and honorable. It's the sacred ground where the passionate love between a man and his his wife can be demonstrated in God's original design. It's the model of the union between Christ and his collective bride, the church. And it's wonderful. And the Bible says this is pure, it's honorable, and we are to regard it as such. So here's another thing that Paul has to say about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. He says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So our culture is exerting unrelenting pressure on the church at large to revise Christian doctrine about sexual ethics. And many cite that times are changing and that the church is going to stay relevant, that it needs to bend to the culture. But the scripture gives a definition here of what marriage is. He says it's a woman having her own husband and a husband having his own wife. And we don't have the authority to change God's model. If we do, then it doesn't model the one-to-one relationship of Christ and his bride, the church. We can't monkey with that equation and expect things to go right and to please God. And so Paul says that the way to avoid sexual sin is to have a marriage of one man and one woman. That's it. Full stop. No embellishment needed. And some religious people um, have asserted that the enjoyment of sex is a danger. But in the context that God gives us as a gift, it's not. Notice what this passage is actually teaching. Paul doesn't talk about the danger of sexual expression in marriage. He's actually talking about a lack of sexual expression in marriage. He says a marriage relationship where physical intimacy is not enjoyed by the partners is a danger. And I think that that's very telling, that depriving our spouse of physical intimacy is a sin. And that's the real danger because that opens up those floodgates of temptation to go outside of the God-ordained context for that expression and find it somewhere else. And how many marriages have we know that have been ruined when that happened? And so many in the world will dismiss marital monogamy as boring, old-fashioned, routine, or dull. And some Christians have even maintained that physical intimacy should be approached with a very solemn, obligatory attitude. But I want to kind of bring our study to a close with Solomon's description of the sacred union. In Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15, he writes, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. So notice a couple of things. This passage is about the abundant overflow of passion between a husband and wife. The passion of that marriage bed kept sacred 
and special just for those two individuals, like a, a treasure that you would guard. This verse is about the pleasure and excitement of youth in enjoying your spouse's body. It's about the heady and intoxicating feelings of love and being in love, which are very well described as eros. And so we need to understand that the scripture isn't lacking. It teaches us what we need to know about a safe context for sex. It teaches us what we need to know about the priority of our infatuation with our beloved one, that it always should be subordinate to the will of Christ in all things, that we might serve him without distraction. And so it's kind of funny that God's word doesn't put the brakes on romance for a Christian who's married, but what it does do is it teaches us how to take the curves. Finally, I want to finish by saying Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 22 teaches us that who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I hope that if you are unmarried, you'll think about these things as you pursue a spouse, one that will lead you toward greater godliness. And if you are married in a relationship with someone and you both love Christ, I hope that you'll have a very fulfilling relationship and that you'll use the scripture as your guide to please God and to honor Christ in all that you do. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening today. I hope this has been instructive. We'll catch up next week doing a roundtable discussion between Jared, Jeffrey, and me, and we hope that'll be interesting as we'll bounce some ideas off one another, and I will probably get shredded for some of the stuff I said today. So thanks for letting me run a little bit long today. Don't forget to give us a like, a share, or a rating wherever you consume podcasts. And we hope that you'll continue to study God's word and that he'll bless you. Thank you so much.